Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year And to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, listeners, I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Foe, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. Osiris. Right. Happy Wednesday, March 9th. My name is Brian Brinkman. 
This is the Helping Friendly Podcast on tour and live coming at you as we have been since, I want to say sometime around Thanksgiving on a weekly basis, which may be increasing here. Maybe we'll have some news for our listeners towards the end of this episode, but we may be coming at you more. But for now, every Wednesday afternoon, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, subsequent hours previously, depending on where you live in the country. This week, myself, Megan, and a very special guest who will be coming on here shortly are diving into some historical fish. Before we get to all that, though, Megan, it's 52 seconds, 53 seconds into the show, and I have not yet asked you, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Brian. I can't believe it's March, first of all. like That just seems crazy. Time just seems to be flying by. I've got spring break coming up next week, and I am super pumped to talk to you and our special guest today. You have spring break. I have snow outside. I have my son's spring break coming up in two weeks. We're going back up to Montana, which I'm very excited about. Oh, nice. But, um, yeah, it's going to be great. But I'm also excited. Yes, we have a very special guest today. We should probably just get it out of the way so that those of you who are wondering who's going to be with us, stick around with us. We have Benji Eisen, who is... Uh, I mean, what's there to say? He needs no introduction. He needs no introduction. He's going to be wearing sunglasses during this, this, uh, this show, which is just amazing. He's been the head writer on undermine for basically the last year. He ran the iGest back in the day. He is everywhere and nowhere all at once, but always present, always with an incredible opinion and incredible insight and incredible thoughts and loads of energy. I don't know. There are very few people in my life who I talk to and I immediately have to perk up and have the energy <laughs> like Benji Eisen. And I'm so excited to be able to talk with him today about spring 1992. We're going to be talking about March 1992 uh, today, aren't we, Meg? Yeah, we are. We're going to go back in time, a long time ago, to when you were a little a little boy. A little boy with big dreams. <laughs> with big and... dreams of seeing fish someday. <laughs> someday and also a, a a little boy watching the Chicago Bulls win their second straight NBA championship it was my favorite basketball season of all time everything else pales in comparison to the 1992 season we went 67 and 15 we lost well, we actually lost a lot of games in the playoffs, so I don't really want to get into that. But we had an <laughs> incredible run where we beat the Portland Trailblazers in June 1992. But before that, Fish was going on a cross-country trip throughout the wide-ranging country of America to mm-hmm. debut in certain locations, to return to other locations, and really kind of ferment what would be the modern era of fish that we now know here today. So I'm very excited to dive into. We're going to take Spring 92 in three episodes. This one, obviously, being in March, we're going to focus on March 1992, and we'll return in April and May to cover those months of fish 1992. Before we do all that, though, I do want to remind listeners out there to please subscribe to Osiris Media on Apple Podcasts to get HF Pod Premium, as well as Undermine Premium, as well as other Osiris Premium episodes, uh, ad-free content as well. 
We have an HF Pod Premium episode going live tomorrow. We recorded it earlier this week. Meg, what did we talk about this week? It was quite a controversial topic, but it was also awesome for us to dive into. What, what did we get into? This week was so fun, and I had so much fun filming this episode. It was hilarious. We were laughing the whole time. We were talking about what's your favorite city to see fish in, and I was surprised by everyone's answers. I was surprised. Maybe not by mine, but mine was probably obvious, but I feel like everyone else's. Yeah, you and I are kind of obvious in our hometown love. But I felt like I learned a lot about all of us. And I think these these bonus episodes have been so much fun. And I also think are just a cool way to dive deep into topics that we don't get to talk about on the show. Yeah, we've just so that you dear listener out there get an idea. We've talked about what we think fish would sound like in 2022. We talked about what our favorite versions of catapult are. And in this episode, we talked about what our favorite city to see fish in. Um, We have a bunch of excellent bonus content uh, ready for you in the coming weeks that we're very excited to dive into. But yeah, to your point, it doesn't really sound like a funny topic. But it ended up being a really funny episode. So we would encourage everyone out there to subscribe to Osiris Media on Apple Podcasts. You get access to HF Pod Premium that way, as well as ad-free content. Um, but that said, we do also want to give a shout out to our sponsor for this episode, as they have been for pretty much every HF Pod episode here in 2022, Sunset Lake CBD. Excellent, excellent company that we encourage all of you to check out. They have a line of smokable hemp products for the old deadhead, perhaps, or the young fish fan. Maybe even the tiny, young, little brother goose fan that is searching for (laughs) the mellow body high. Of which I am a little brother goose fan. You know, I'm an old deadhead. I'm a young fish fan. I'm a little brother goose fan. Um, Smoking CBD has all the benefits of high THC cannabis without the paranoia or the anxious side effects. With nine different strains from this year's harvest, there's something for everyone. The Hawaiian haze is awesome for an outdoor show and cherry abacus is best for the end of the night. All the flower is grown, cured, and trimmed by Sunset Lake CBD farmers. Even better, Sunset Lake CBD's farm-to-table approach gets you great pricing on premium CBD flour by shipping directly from their farm to your door. Um, I actually enjoyed some Sunset Lake uh, smokables before going live here today, which is something I would not be able to do with THC. I would have way too much paranoia, way too much anxiety. We'd be going through the topic and I'd be thinking like, should I have just said what I just said? Did, Did I need to add that? Was that too much? Not with CBD. Feel mellow, feel relaxed, nothing crazy going on upstairs. It's excellent, excellent stuff. So I'd encourage all of you out there to check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com. Use the coupon code HFPOD for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont grown. And with that, we are going to flip the pages back in time to the iGest. And we're going to bring on Mr. Benji Eisen. The legend. The legend. Benji, how are Hi, you? Hi, Benji. Great to be here. Great to be here with both of you. It's awesome to see you again. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I just got back from uh, several weeks in Mexico and then followed by a weekend in New York. So, yeah, things are great. My head is still drying out from the from the travel. <laughs> travel. 
problems. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> you look great. You look very relaxed. I feel very relaxed. I had I had a little bit of a gonzo uh, a, um, couple of weeks where I forgot that there was a pandemic, and now I'm home. So we all need that. We like, all need that. I feel like a lot of people are forgetting that right now, which yeah. is which is not yeah. a bad thing. It's we, no. we yeah. deserve some some clarity and things opening back up. Yeah. Um, Benji, before we dive into the topic of the day, you were in Mexico. You saw the fish shows uh, down there. Give us your kind of quick breakdown. What was your impression on the shows? What was your impression on the vibe? What did you think of Fish Mexico 2022? Uh, I thought it was phenomenal top to bottom, but the thing that, that strikes me musically, and I've only listened, it, it, it's very atypical for me. I, I listened after that Thursday warm-up set. Uh, I listened to it immediately again and uh, afterwards. And I don't need to listen to it again now, but um, but there are some great takeaways. Uh, and then the other shows I thought was so phenomenal, but I was so wrapped up in being in the moment and, and seeing people I haven't seen for a few years and it's being in Mexico and, and all that. So I went for the experience over the the going back to the re-listens mm -hmm. as I often do. And I haven't re-listened since, but I'll tell you what, I the the takeaways for me and what really struck me, one, the set lists were were phenomenal. Uh, you know, I, I thought it was great. And it demonstrated how Fish really can't in four shows. Fish need fish needs a baker's dozen, and you know, yes. so much material. And any given run, they're not going to hit. Now they just they just keep adding and adding and adding and adding, uh, and hopefully not taking away as much. And so they, it just it just means we need more fish in our lives. And um, <laughs> and I, there's also this thing where, you know, and I think we're going to get to this today. And that in the '90s, Fish was a different band every tour and mm -hmm. i feel like now the uh it's a lot harder to do because they've covered so much ground and they've evolved and so now it's a lot more subtle but there are differences from fish mexico and and what we think it was the 4.0 period thus far you know a lot mm -hmm. of that with a lot there's there's less you know i i think before sci-fi soldier they were really you know, it's, it's uh, they're like leaning on those toys because they were just diving into it and it was so much fun. And now they kind of have them in the toolbox, but they went back to this, you know, tr the, the focus was a little different. And I feel like what we saw in Mexico is going to be similar to what we see at MSG in terms of the, the, the sound and the playing and the, and, and where the jams are and, and those little things that define the era. And I think we're in a new, uh, a new, new era now, you know, at 4.1. 4.1. I love it. I, I know I that people, uh, without starting <laughs> more, uh, totally. I know that, I know it's very controversial. We'll just say, I, I, you know, 4.1 for an easy uh, to say that it's evolved from where they started. But, but you know, I'll let the statisticians and the the uh, the the zizitzes out there argue the. the <laughs> we'll be going back and updating Undermine Season Two with 4.024.1 now in every. <laughs> <laughs> and MSU would be 4.12. <laughs> yeah, this is going to get so complicated. I am not going to keep up with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, hope so. I hope so. I'm all for, I'm all for the complication of fish. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's already well, so complicated. I, we spent a lot of time talking through Mexico, and I think that um, we would both agree. There, there were these subtle changes and these subtle mm -hmm. things that were picked up. It, it still felt like you know, it felt like if you put a 2022 jam on an early 2022 jam compared to a fall 2021 jam, you would know that you're listening to the same band, which as we're going to talk about here was one of the big differences as we start to move into 1992 fish where on a tour by tour year by year basis, the band is adding 
huge chunks of new songs that would go on to be classics still at the time, huge like new style innovations and are putting themselves in a position where they're about to evolve in a way that, um, you know, will ultimately come to define them over the next, uh, over the next 10, 15 years. Um, so why don't we dive into it? Why don't we talk here about spring 1992? Let's set the context for these shows. Um, Fall 1991 closed with 49 shows plus a Worcester New Year's Eve. It was not a show at the Centrum, but it was a show in Worcester, Massachusetts. And it really, this was the first three set New Year's Eve show. It really kind of solidifies where Fish is going. Um, You get a couple big highlights in fall 1991. A picture of Nectar debuts, a lot of picture of Nectar songs, which would be released in the winter of 1992. Plus songs like Brother, It's Ice, Sparkle, All Things Reconsidered, and Glide. You get a near-complete Game Henge performance on October 13th in Washington, which was, I believe, the first Game Henge performance since 1988. And then you get this Halloween run in Colorado, which they had done in 1989, or excuse me, 1990 as well. And it really kind of showcases their love affair with Colorado, which they would return to here in the spring of 1992. Um, Benji, What are some of your thoughts about kind of this transition here from 1991 to 1992? What are, what are some of the contextual points that we need to make? Well, I think it's uh, interesting in that in my own fish. So I I became a fish fan on, on New Year's Eve, 1993. um, And I haven't looked back, but, but have looked back musically. (laughs) And so at the time (laughs) when I was diving into it and building my, my, my tape collection, you know, it was, it was getting tapes from 92 and, and, and previously, and it was, you know, I think even early on, apart there's the Ian McLean's Farm show, which is so much fun mm-hmm. to listen to, purely for the because it, it's a fun show. They're having fun. The banter is is fun. They're silly, and that's an element of fish that they had from the very beginning from Nectar's and and that I always loved and latched onto. And it's interesting because in 1992, some of these other elements that uh, of a fish that we love today are just being born, and we're seeing the seeds for them. That in 91, 90, in, in, in the, in the, in the eighties, they were a college band. They were, you know, they, they mm-hmm. not college rock, but they were a college band. And then the nineties is when they really decided beginning with 1990 is when they really decided they were going to become this national band and, 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 and you know, really branch out. And I think you see that in 91 with the era, uh, with at Arrowhead ranches where it comes to the head, we see with the horn players and they're really building a, an entertaining show. But mm-hmm. 92, I think, is such a stepping stone year that by the end of the year, they are a remarkably different band than when, than when they started um, and or just more evolved. And, and that some of these ideas that you see in the very beginning of the spring tour uh, by the end of the year have become almost old hat, like they've mastered them. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and there's some, you know, show techniques and, and, and jamming techniques and improv hallmarks and, uh, and just, you know, I, I want to say trademarks of, of jams that, that we really see the beginnings of in March. And the other thing that's so uh, amazing, Brian, when you reached out to me and you said spring 92, I thought immediately of April. One mm-hmm. month into the tour, mm-hmm. you're already so far evolved that you have, the, the, you have these shows that to this day I go back and listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. Like the notion of like all these foundational elements of modern fish. Mm-hmm. Like if you listen to 83 through 91, you hear this band go from just kind of bizarre experimentation, throwing anything at the wall. You get a lot of these original songs, the idea of game henge. We talked about all of this in undermine season one, 1990 and 91 feel like very, um, uh, yeah, there's a clear focus that what we need to do as a band is we need to tighten up and we need to showcase all elements of who we are to anyone that we're playing to. And 1992 feels like the first moment where they can start to kind of loosen up and experiment. They're still very tight. There's still not a ton of type two jamming, but, and and that variety show aspect is going to be in place through the end of Mm -hmm. 1993, or at least through the end of spring 1983, but you're starting to hear them break from that. Meg, Meg, what are your thoughts in terms of like the context of where we're at going from 91 into 92? Yeah. I mean, when I think about what Fish was like in 91, 92, I think they were a hardworking band. You know, they were touring all the time and when they weren't touring, they were rehearsing. And I think they were really trying to build that sense of like, this is what we do and trying to figure out who are we when we do it, right? What's our stage kind of like Benji, you were saying, what's their show? I think they were also bringing in people. Brad, Brad Sands joins the team this in 91. And I think he was really someone who's instrumental in building that connection with the audience. And, you know, I think you think of fish.net emerging around this time. This is this community that's starting to really like grow around this band. And that to me is what makes a big influence on their shows too. You see Trey talking to the audience so much, you know, explicitly talking about the secret language and introducing that officially, even though they've been doing some of that, but that is really speaking to kind of like that relationship and and making it explicit and saying, we want to grow this relationship. We want to connect with you. And I think that's really different from other bands at the time. And I think that is something that you see right away. And I think that to them immediately kind of builds this connection that is valuable to them. And I think that's something they push towards and is why the band is what it is today. So I really think about that connection between the audience, something that's just really starting to build so much this time period. Yeah. There's an interesting notion of like, unless we connect with these people and they remember us, we're we're not going to be on MTV. We're not going to get a lot of radio play. So we have to make sure that when we play a show in your city, you walk away with an impression that you want to make the effort to buy our CD, but also to trade tapes as, as those are starting to happen. And we start to see this transition from 91 to 92. You talk about Amy's farm, you talk about Arrowhead, you talk about um, uh, the Colorado Springs Halloween show. Like there's all these essential shows that are starting to happen that if you're becoming a fish fan in the early nineties, you have to hear these tapes to understand them. One other thing I want to highlight that you said, and it was it was something I was really thinking about as as looking at this period, is how hardworking they are. And if you look at mm-hmm. the 89, 90, 91 run, they really start to um, finalize what the touring schedule is going to look like. That's basically mm-hmm. going to run them through spring 93, where they open the tour in the Northeast. They play in their comfort zone. They play a lot of shows in the Northeast and kind of smaller towns work their way down the Atlantic coast, go further and further South, play these big shows in Atlanta, work across the Southwest to California, maybe stop in Colorado along the way, jump up there from like Santa Fe, but then do the California coast all the way up to Seattle, this big drive towards Minnesota, play the Midwest and then return and play these triumphant 
two or three week runs in the Northeast. So they're like bookending all of these tours in the Northeast while expanding themselves out outwards and finding pockets of uh, Atlanta, Colorado, San Francisco, and like the smaller California towns along the coast that are really going to embrace them and be kind of the places that they return to once they don't have to play 55 shows in a given tour. You know, there's an, another element of this tour that that I think is really uh, stark, and that's um, if we're looking at the pattern of the of the of the the tour overall and the music and the set list that they they're playing. You know, there's that expression standing on the sh- uh, standing on the on the shoulders of giants, which of course Fish did in, in so much as they weren't born in a vacuum and and whatever. And you know, what it and I think it's important to remember what at least when I got into Fish, there was nobody else sounding like Fish. How, but you know, but people were saying that you know Grateful Dead and blah 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 and and sure they sounded to me a little bit like if King Crimson and the Meters were you know combined forces plus that you know you have all these disparate elements of them but there's nobody sounding like them but I feel that '92 this tour is where they started for, forgetting that their influences and 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 all the building blocks that they came from that uh, that can be very easily attributed to influence. I feel like after 92, they start standing on the shoulders of their own shadow. And mm. what I mean by that is that in, in 92, this particular tour that we're talking about, there's David Bowie's, there are tweezers, there's a, at least one bathtub gin that comes to my mind, where now if a, if a friend who's never heard Fish but is really into music were to ask me to play them, hey, I heard Fish has a song called David Bowie, would you play? I wouldn't choose the 92 version. But that being said, if I had walked into one of these venues in 92 and saw them play that David Bowie or that Tweezer or that Split Open and Melt, uh, uh, you know, all these songs which were in their infancy, but but they're in the bathtub gin. I, I think it was from Atlanta, the bathtub gin I'm thinking of. But there, there's, a, there's a few of them this tour where they kind of break through and you can see where mm-hmm. they're going. And it's phenomenal playing. And at the time, you would think, oh, my God, this band is so and you know unique and, and innovative and, and incredible and in hindsight those jams almost bore us now because, uh, because yeah. they, you know the ceiling kept going higher and higher and right. higher and higher but when you listen to 92 in that context and you hear some of these tweezers and some of these bowies and they're playing hoods they're playing these you know 12 minute mm-hmm. hoods uh you know on average every night 12 minutes 11 minutes that were just phenomenal for the time and they still stand up even if now there's you know, 20 versions that, that would overshadow them, you know, 50 versions yeah. would overshadow them. I would even add like Reba or Fluffhead. There's some incredible yeah, versions yeah. in this tour, you know, even in that we're going to talk about today, like even in the first few shows, like they're just, they're playing really, really precisely, really yeah. well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Reba and Fluffhead as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Well, it's also an interesting point because, you know, <clears throat> I think two things. One, basically from here, through the fall 1996 tour, the fish show in and of itself is being held up by the songs. And, and while some of these songs are going to jam out songs that are about to be the focus over the next four years, when the band is going to go from a theater band to an arena band who is in need, like dire need of, of reinvention because they think that they've pushed this sound as far as they can go, which will ultimately, you know, become 1997. But over these next four years, when you go see a fish show, Fluffhead, Reba, David Bowie, Harry Hood, Tweezer, like you go on the list of classic big songs, either compositions or big jams. Those are the songs that are going to ultimately define a show. Whereas when we go see Fish now, 
they could play an entire show and not play Tweezer, Reba, Fluffhead, David Bowie, Harry Hood, and it still could be an excellent show, which, you know, mm-hmm. speaks to long-term how, how far they've grown. But this is that, like, just completely classic period of Fish where all of these songs that we love that got us all into Fish, they are the dominant songs of this period. Mike's song would be an example. You know, the Mike's groove would be an example. The other thought is, like, you know, you talk about the jamming. At this point in Fish history, Trey is still the draw. Like, and, and he's very clearly the draw. And I remember having a conversation with someone about like what defines this separation between a jam band that gets to a level where they can sell out, you know, 2,500 seats, 5,000 seats, really impressive stuff. And one that can play in arenas on a consistent basis. And it's someone like Trey. It's someone like Jerry. It's a guitarist. Everybody comes to. And if you listen to these fish shows where they're playing like 1,200 people and Trey is mm-hmm. just playing at a level that, you know, in some cases he won't, he'll, he'll continue to excel, but like this is like the purest Trey sound that we've ever heard. I don't know. There's something about this era that like you're still thinking of fish in some cases as Trey and three bandmates, whereas what will make fish fascinating over the next couple of years is that Trey is going to try to step back as much as possible and incorporate his bandmates in a way that will make them grow as a team way more than they could have to this point. Um, it, it might be the only period yeah. of, of fish where he's actually nailing the, the famous Mockingbird. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so looking to, Spring 1992, just to set the table before we jump into a couple of these shows here, because we have some recommendations for you all of what we think we should listen to. Um, as I said earlier, Picture of Nectar is released on February 12th. That is a classic assortment of fish songs. I feel like it's, I guess, I don't want to be blasphemous here, but I'm just thinking off the cuff. Tell me if I'm totally wrong. I feel like the only two albums that are similar to a Picture of Nectar are undermined and big boat in the sense that like they're just kind of a collection of songs from the era there's really no theme to picture of nectar it's just kind of like here's chalk dust torture here's stash here's tweezer mm-hmm. you know it's it's all these songs from the era that don't necessarily go together thematically whereas the next record uh rift is going to be an absolute like rift is going to be this absolute uh thematic masterwork of a record in a lot of cases but so we get picture of nectar being released on february 12th uh 54 shows encompass the Andy two tour from march 6th to may 18th the tour opens up with a number of debuts that are going to go on rift we've got song rift and the fast version maze my friend mound songs like nicu and sleeping monkey my mind's got a mind of its own way the cold as ice intro rather than hyhu and cracklin rosie all of these songs are debuted here in the first weekend as well as a very very special moment the secret language which is going to add a <laughs> whole new element to where it is at which i think we should pause before we get into the highlights i, I want to hear you guys thoughts on the secret language and, and how it impacts fish benji we we talked about this a bit in undermine season two but i want to get your thoughts like how does the secret language differentiate fish and 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 add to where they are at in early 1992 well i i think the secret 
I, I think the secret language, uh, well, one, it doesn't get any more fishy than that, right? The idea <laughs> totally. That, and especially when you look at the venues that they're in, I love what they were going for in that if you didn't know this band and you walked in and you to to one of these venues and you saw the entire audience fall down to the ground, you know, uh, it, it's just, it's the same thing of, of mm -hmm. it also reminds me of how Punch You in the Eye was originally named Punch Me in the Eye only so that somebody would yelling for it at a bar next to somebody that doesn't know the band would say, punch me in the eye, you know? Um, which I always thought was amazing. And the secret language plays into that. Of what I what I didn't re remember until, until last night when I went back to look at these set lists, I remember, of course, the campus club and, I, and, and, and getting the secret language. And, and I remember when I first got those secret language instructions, and I had already at that point like heard uh, the Simpsons and and heard the all fall down, but never heard the explanation. And uh, it felt like it was an initiation rite. And I think that's kind of what the band was going for and that they wanted, Brian, you hinted at this earlier, they wanted, you, there was no MTV, right, for this band. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, they knew that what it was going to be was people telling other people, hey, so here's instructing, like like you're initiating into I don't want to say the word cult with fish, but you know, initiating into <laughs> society, into us, into some secret handshake society, and it feels very inclusive, and therefore you get more and more engaged, and you want to come back, and you want to hear that when they, when they, you know, you when they do the Simpsons to this day, it's so much fun because as soon as they do it, you know, you're gonna say that, though, and like you get so excited <laughs> for it. And uh, I almost wish that they would bring, you know, more secret language back into into their vernacular um, when they're jamming. But uh, what I what I didn't remember off the top of my head until last night was how many times they gave yes. the secret language instructions. I had remembered it being two or three times, and it's this whole month. They're, they're, they're you know, Trey's taking the time to explain. And then the other thing that plays right into that that I think is so interesting and fascinating from uh, – Fisherological standpoint is is that uh, you know Trey always knew that you know and as we talked about this being the building blocks and about like how they still to this day do a lot of the things that they had started in this tour. Uh, I think it's interesting in in terms of the narrations and uh, the secret language. Trey knew that people were spreading tapes in '92, and, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. he knew that a lot of people were coming back. And he talks about it from stage, and that he he recognizes yeah. people in the audience. And he'll say, "Well, you guys know when they do when they do the secret language in Atlanta." He says, "Well, a lot of people here know from mm -hmm. there. A lot of people we recognize, but some people don't. So we'll explain it, and then now you guys explain it to your friends, you know." And it's very, very clear when they do um, they do a few Forbes uh, Mockingbirds narrations, and one of them, the one from New Haven, Trey almost just glosses over it, you know, the way he does mm -hmm. these things. Where he's like, yeah. you guys know what I'm talking about. There's Ezekiel, and then there's oh, yeah, and then now the famous Monument. And he even says that you guys, he goes, most of you guys know what we're talking about. And that was at the Palace Theater in New Haven in 1992. So you know, yeah. that, I think that's. Uh, I mean, fish themselves have been a secret language since day one. I mean, this is there's an inside great... joke band. You know, yeah. this yes. is a band that that our culture around fish is about inside jokes. I mean, there's so many things like that I wear that people in my life are like, what does that mean? And I'm like, if you know, you know, you know, yeah. there's, that's what fish cultivates and they were cultivating it from the very beginning because I think the band wants us to know who they are. You know, that 
in the same way that they want to know, you know, connect with us and they want us to know who they are and humor is so important to them and such an important reason why they're still playing together. And I think that that is something that they've always wanted to bring out. And I think that this is like, like you were saying, Benji, this is when they start to realize like, oh shit, people are actually like doing this stuff and like talking about us and passing the word on. And every time they would play a new town, they would play somewhere like, you know, a thousand people bigger the next year. You know, I think about my first show was in fall of 1994 and they were double sizing their venues every year, you know? And it's amazing to think about the show I saw that was like 2,500 seats. And then, you know, later that year they're playing MSG. So like, it's just, they knew they were growing and they knew that like the reason they were growing was because they were connecting with us. And so I think that inside joke culture is something that has really been part of their success. Yeah. It's such a risk to think about as well. Like if you're listening to a spring 1992 show, you're a big fish fan. Like it's not really uh, <laughs> an era that like, you know, that, 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 that like just like a casual, like so they're going to go like 1231 you know, there's, there's going to be something right. else they listen to. Um, and I'm thinking about it because I saw a show this last uh, weekend at uh, the Bluebird Theater here in Denver, which is like, I think 1800, 2300. It's, it's small, it's intimate. And the band feels like you feel like you're right on top of the band. And if there's any misnote, if there's any awkward moment, if there's any like joke that's told from the stage that just falls flat, like you can really feel it and it feels uncomfortable in the room. And you think about how risky it is on like a basically night to night basis to say like, we're going to tell you about this secret language and hope that you get all these people you know, hanging on with you. I think about the, we're, we're going to talk about it in a second, but that one of my favorite shows, probably my favorite show from this month, when they get to the secret language, Trey just goes, you guys know the language? And like more than <laughs> half the room responds. And like, what a moment that must be like as a, 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 you know, as a leader of a band to know not only are people connecting with our music, not only people are coming to different shows, not only people are trading tapes, but they're buying into our just like crazy inside jokes that will only encourage us to play more inside jokes on you, the audience who have paid your hard earned money to come and see us. It's just such a moment of like, this is going to be bigger. You know, they've already known this is going to be bigger than just like us screwing around in a college dorm room. But now we're at a point where like, this is going to be bigger than us literally loading our own gear. Like we're going to get to a point Mm -hmm. potentially in the future where enough people care that we can just do this without much stress. And um, that's definitely what I feel as we, as we move here into, into this, this tour. By, Let's by jump in. Year, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say by the end of the year, they were doing stuff like when they did the new year's in Boston and they, and they have these, these inside these audience cues, you know, that, that they're doing basically a, uh, an alternate version of the secret language based for radio, which then cut to bid Cypress where they did cheesecake, you know, and, mm-hmm. Also, you know, Brian, as you're as you were saying with the secret language, how fast it spreads, it was funny too because I mean I saw that with the meat stick dance. I think you know what where yeah. they 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 do it on on the on one coast, and then by the time they get to the other, they they know things that spread. And that that was before these days when when everyone can literally see the video of it within hours of it happening, you know, or mm-hmm. live, you know, live, while it's happening. Yeah. Better, yeah. Well, I think that there's a through line that you can draw from this type of stuff to you know this is much lamented so just let me explain myself but oh boy the tahoe the, the the tahoe tweezer 
the woo moment that happens. It's almost like you can draw a straight line from the secret language and this trust that the band mm -hmm. is extending to the fan base and then playing this jam that then spontaneously erupts from the crowd in woos. And then the band plays off of those woos and those woos. See, Megan's dog does not like the and on cue. On cue. Reba. On cue. She's Megan's, not a wooer. Reba is not a wooer. <laughs> I understand. I'm not either. But like my point is just like this connection back and forth between a, what starts as a joke ultimately becomes we are making music together. Like we as the band are playing this, you're responding, we're responding to that. And that all kind of comes out of this trust that's extended at this point in their career, which is a pretty cool moment for them. Um, let's jump into, we, we have, so we want to recommend some shows and, and what we want to do first is we have two shows that we think without question, if you have never listened to any March, 1992, these are the two shows like stop right now, put them on no matter your impression of this year, no matter the fact that you're a staunch, I only listen post baby grand, uh, no matter where you are at. I'm a 97 or later listener. Yeah, Sorry, that guy. I can't be really thick. <laughs> Whatever you are, these two shows you have to hear because they have really, you know, real big contextual value in terms of where Fish was at at this point in time. And they're both awesome shows. Uh, mm -hmm. The first one we are going to talk about is March 13th, 1992 from the Campus Club in Providence, Rhode Island. Megan, you, you and Benji both selected this show. Megan, can you tell me what your thoughts are on this show and why you selected it here for this conversation. Yeah. I mean, the setless construction of the show is so fantastic. It has such a monster first set that has like a real second set feel to it. And it actually feels a little bit ahead of its time to me. I mean, the curtain is one of my most favorite openers and I just, I mean, you hear this open a show and you just know it's going to be a good show. I think also the pace and the precision of this show, it is just, incredible. There's just an energy and a drive behind it the whole time. And the first like five, six, seven songs, just like clip. I mean, you, you have got to keep up when you're listening to the show. It is just moving, but they're also like starting to stretch out a little bit. Like you can hear Trey start to really shred, like at the end of like split open and melt. This is a gorgeous fluff head. It just rips at the end. And then it just ends in this like really kind of ambient Wizard of Oz theme that is like super creepy and cool. <laughs> and then it just goes into like probably the jam. I don't know if it's the jam of the tour, but definitely the jam of March for sure. This big black furry antelope from Mars. I mean, they sound so locked in. This to me sounds like when they start really recognizing like the more we listen to each other, we can actually go different places. And I think that the transition between antelope and big black furry creature, the back and forth is completely seamless. It's just like the beginning of the antelope that goes into these like really slinky and kind of discordant sounds. It gets super dark. And then there's that first segue into big black furry. It is seamless. It's so cool. And just listening to them go back and forth. It sounds like it's just so much fun. I think that that first set is like, I can't imagine being in this like intimate small theater and hearing this. Like, I feel like your mind would just explode. Like, this is just, just an awesome first set. I think, I don't know. I want to hear your thoughts on the first set before we talk second set. My thoughts, my thoughts are, yes. um, I agree with you completely. And also I think for anybody that 
<clears throat> um, thought that Curveball or around that time period that they were doing these things where they were mashing up their own songs and the people that forget their fishery, they think, you know, if, if Fish was to play that that big black furry creatures are, uh, you know, from ours and Antelope mashup now, or even in 2019, I, half the audience would say, oh my God, it's groundbreaking. And the other, half yeah. the, would, the other half of the audience would say, ah, that's a bag of tricks. You know, they're, they're you know, <laughs> But uh, I feel like, you know, for both of those sides, you need to know your fishery. They were doing this back in 1992, you know, um, and they did it seamlessly back then. You're, you're absolutely right, Megan. They, 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 it is such a perfect example of improvisational risk taking and uh, without a net and, and of, them, of them coming up champions. And I feel yeah. that, you know, you can trace that directly to anything that may have happened at Meriwether Post Pavilion in more recent years or you know Raleigh and and there's other there's all these shows where they do this amazing mashup jam and Tweezer Fest for that matter as well, and Tweezer Fest you know often the times I myself would trace that history back to the Bomb Factory, but this was mm. all you know as I said earlier it's standing on the shadow or standing on the shoulders of their own shadow. This is their shadow that they that they're laying down. They're laying down the foundation, uh, and and. The divided sky too. The 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 I thought it was really funny. Some fans yelled possum. Oh, no, uh, <laughs> fans, yeah, fans are shouting possum because if you listen yeah. to just two minutes earlier, you hear Trey yell possum into the mic during that pause when all the <laughs> when all the when all the the bros back then were yelling for you know Camelot or whatever it was that they're yelling for. Uh, and I, I think there are people yelling for Crazy Train of all things on, on the tape. But but you hear all these <laughs> heckling and Trey calls out the heckling. So even the heckling's not new. <laughs> in the band making fun yeah. of that. <laughs> uh, but and also you said an, an, another another thing that I thought was really true, and that's it's the set list construction here. It's a dream. It's unbelievable. If they totally. played this set uh, down in Mexico, people would be losing their minds. You know, it, it's just a perfect, perfect set. And and the songs are really coming. The Fluffhead is is uh, one of the, maybe the best Fluffhead from the tour. Um, they're just so loose mm. with it and so free and in the campus club in Providence, I don't know the the capacity, but there's that intimate feel. And for me, the other thing too, I tried is that, to look you know, it up. I couldn't figure it out. It it feels really intimate, and and the band, mm -hmm. you know, some of these other shows in March feel like showcase fish. When fish is in a bigger, mm -hmm. when fish has that that spotlight on them, they turn they 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 tend to out of nerves or whatever it is, they don't they're not as loose. And instead, they want they want to do the Saturday night special where they're impressing everybody mm -hmm. with here's our big guns, you know? And I feel like in yeah. the campus club, they, they had their guard down. And then the next few nights, even at Roseland, when, they, when they're in Roseland, then at, you know, a few nights later, they're trying to put their best foot forward. And that means not taking yeah. as many risks and instead showing off here, look how tight we are with these amazing compositions that we're just mastering, you know? So the campus club I thought was the anomaly there. It's really good points from both of you. Like, Megan, the the idea of the like the hay hole jamming that we're starting to see. Um, one really cool thing, if you listen to this sound check is available. And if you listen to it, there's a really great piano jam. There's a great shaggy dog into dog log. There's a blues jam. And then they play bag and the grup. And the jam segments in these sound checks are windows like to where the band will be a year later. They're not playing this publicly. And, and, you know, as we get into April, there's going to be more improvisation that we're going to dive into. There's two jams in particular that like, Oh my God, just blow my mind from April. But like at this point, 
they're not necessarily doing that live. What they are doing though is this antelope, big black furry creature from Mars, antelope, where that seamless transition, that listening to each other is such an advanced level of playing for a band that could just come on stage and play some of these songs and be like, dude, we just played Fluffhead. Mm-hmm. What else do you want? But they're figuring out like, <laughs> what are the wormholes in our songs? Like where, where can we figure out that this song ends, this song begins, and then this song restarts. And that sort of like listening exercise, that sort of um, kind of challenging themselves while having fun while they're doing it is going to pay off hugely a year later. Uh, the other thought is, you know, this is a Friday night and, and they're not, they're not adept, you know, they're, 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 they're not removed even at this age from the standpoint of like, we want to show our best foot off when we go to the Roseland on a Saturday night. Like they are the, the idea of a Friday night being for the, for the fans, for the band is, is ever present here. Um, the 30th night. <laughs> let's jump in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> looking, looking, pulling back for, for a second to look at the bird's eye yeah. view of this month. But another thing that, that keeps coming up is that, you know, there's a, they play Bowie a lot this month and Hood and, you know, and part of that's the size of the repertoire, but, but they're starting to do, they're starting to use the beginning of Bowie, the intro there to kind of tease other, other songs that they played during that same set and that yes. they played during that same show and even not just in Bowie, but you know, it, there's other there's other examples as well. And that's a trend that, of course, continues to this day. And when they do that this day, you know, it's always been a crowd pleasing trend, especially when it's not being used as a crutch, but it's because it's it's off the cuff. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I think that you know, again, standing up, standing on their own on their own shoulders, you know, this is where a lot of that really they really started to do that and to really get good feedback from that. One other point I want to make just before we jump into set two, Megan talked about this, like feeling like a second set, even more than that, like these and, and Benji, you talked about like this set list is a dream. They play split open a melt maze divided sky Fluffhead and run like an antelope all in the same set. And that's not a unique feature of this, of this show. Like that is this tour. If you ever want to listen to fish shows where like, it's just one classic after another classic after another, and they're all played just perfectly. This tour is 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 where it's at. Um, Meg, let's jump into set two here. What are your thoughts on this? I think this is a great set too. I mean, it's just the way it starts is super cool. I mean, you have this like really creepy vibe and this like creep into Wilson. Whereas now when you hear Wilson, it just comes off with such like insane energy. This is like a really creepy, like like, slow entry into it. And I found myself just like, you know, when you're listening to music and then you stop where you are and you're like, wait, this is the beginning of Wilson. Like, this is awesome. Like, it's so <laughs> creepy. And they're playing like, I think they're even playing the um, Wizard of Oz theme a little bit. Like, it's definitely, it's got this really kind of cool vibe and they're singing really softly and it's just, it's really cool. And I think because the show is so high energy and the pace is so intense that when they drop into that horse and I mean, I love Horse Silent in the Morning. That's one of my favorite little suites of music. But when they drop into that, you're almost like, thank God, like I need a breath. Like this is like, I need to, I need to relax. Like keeping up with 92 Fish is intense. Like I can't imagine how they felt when they came off stage after these shows because they are just like working, like not stopping at all. I also think the commitment to like silly singing really stands out to me. Like they are not ashamed to sound like total 
I don't want to say weirdos, but kind of like they're just committed to singing in a really silly way that I think is really endearing. And it's just, it's really fun to listen to. I liked listening to that. I heard that a lot in these shows, but especially in the show too, how they're willing to kind of go there. It's fun. Benji, what are your thoughts on the second set? So the second set, you know, the, this is why the show immediately came to mind when we were talking about March 92. It's because in 93, uh, this second set in particular was in everybody's tape collection. Uh, <laughs> you know, partly because it was it was uh, not advertised because there's no advertising involved, but partly because it was word of mouth had it that the secret language instructions are here. You need, if you're a fish fan, you need this tape to kind of instruct you to how to be a fish fan. You know, and it was about more than just that. I mean, right, you know, right before then, before the possum with the secret language, you have a Henrietta tune where you have the, you know, him doing love you with, with the cold as ice, which was still new. And so Megan, you're right. Like they're, they're not afraid to be themselves and who, who they are, especially then when they, they weren't dads, you know, and they were, they were much younger and, yeah. and life wasn't so serious and you know they they've retained that spirit which uh thank god and which i love about them you know even even you know into present into the present day but back then uh opening with wilson closing with possum with the secret language instructions and everything in between they have my mind's got a mind of its own you know uh also not an easy song to play uh yeah. and, and and a very lighthearted song to to uh you know lyrically content wise um, and you have the lizards and 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 sloth and rift too, which they at that point was um, they. I mean, they've always kind of slayed rift, but but and it's not really a slay song, you know. But they've nailed it, is what I should say. Mm-hmm. And here they there's an there's an energy to it that uh, they've always been an enthusiastic band, but there's this energy in this set where they're standing on a pile of gold and they know it. You know, and they're, yeah, yeah. They're, just like, they're like waiting to be discovered, but they know what they're on. They know they're onto it and they know they have it. So that even in a song like Rift, when, they, you know, they can whip that out and just nail it and just know that like they're about to blow minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I, I think it's a complete show. That's the other thing about. Yeah. About because the, the first set really is the because of that ending with the with the with the uh, run like a big black furry creature from Mars. It, you know, that's the kind of like. Uh, where my natural highlight, you know, vision goes. Mm-hmm. But the entire show is just a top to bottom solid 1992 show that you can't really can't really top for the era. Mm-hmm. It's a brilliant show. And a week later, our <laughs> second show that we are going to recommend here, Friday night, March 20th, 1992, one day. After my seventh birthday, I was not aware of this show at the time, but I've always felt <laughs> a, a connection to it. Um, speaking of, I, I want to just like point out to your point, Benji, they're not dads yet. At the time, Trey was 27 years old. Paige, I believe, was either 28 mm-hmm. or 29. Fish had just turned 28, I believe, and um, Mike was probably 26. So just imagine these guys in their late 20s, they've they're successful enough that they can do this for their career. And this is now their job. There's no going back. There's no backup plan. Like they have the mm-hmm. the investments into becoming a band. They're getting crowds to come out. They're not playing arenas yet, but like, and they're probably, you know, they're still driving around in like the Voyager, but like, this is what they're doing. And they're in their late twenties, still living out this collegiate dream. It's just that, an amazing, amazing thing. Mm-hmm. 
that's such an interesting point because I mean, they're Billy Strings' age, you know, what, what his right. mm. is now. And it's interesting because looking at this tour and at this year, I, I, I was thinking the other day, if I had, if, if fish stopped growing, you know, and, and if, if 1992 was, was where they ended up as a band and they just kept repeating that, I would still see them when they came to town, you know, totally. and, and mm -hmm. they would still have, they would be, uh, and I don't mean to offend any 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 fans of any bands here, but they'd be like Mo, the you know the the the, mm -hmm. the Mo tier, where it uh, or my own friends in the Disco Biscuits, where it's a very mm -hmm. respectable. And I'm not talking about musical journeys; I'm talking about size audience sizes. They, yeah. they you know, if you can play the Broome County Forum and you and you can play the Palace Theater and you can play these rooms, you have a very solid, respectable career. As you know. Mm -hmm. Um, it's totally. Naturally, you're you're stable. The, your business is stable, and and if you can have your uh, enough loyal fans that you know would come back and see you. And in 1992, if, if they had stayed at this level, like I said, I would I would continue to see them. I, mm -hmm. I I probably wouldn't go down to Mexico to see them, but I would still be I would still be going to see them whenever they came to town, and and they would still have a career. And maybe it'd be easier to get tickets. Yes. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> I, I want to put a pin in that because that's something I want to return to when we get to the end of this of this episode. But but it, it, it ties into like what Meg was talking about earlier about like how hardworking they were because like there was really no stopping. And, and I don't want to, again, mm -hmm. I don't want to insult any bands like because I think a lot of this is ephemeral. We don't know what, what creates success. And, you know, so much of what helped Fish out was right time, right place, right type of mm -hmm. vibe. But also there is that really, really hard work that they put in on a night-to-night -night basis that we're hearing here. But the show I want to recommend is one of my favorite fish shows ever. I consider this to be a top 50 fish show of all time. This was the original 92 tape that I got that like gave me the sense of like this is what classic fish sounds like. It is March 20th, 1992 from the Broome County Forum. I just want to read to you guys the first set, okay? Because Benji talks about like a, this perfect set from from three thirteen, and I totally agree. But like this was to me, I, I would put this on, and it was like listening to a fish album: Wilson, <laughs> Reba, Brother, Glide, Rift, Fluffhead, Maze, The Lizards, Mound, and Antelope. Like, yeah. Uh, how much more of a vibe of just what fish is can you get from that? It's just so perfect. It's an assault. <laughs> <laughs> you get it's really gorgeously kind of played crazy. too. Yeah, it's gorgeously played. You get this crazy. They start brother and Trey starts yelling out like, "Oh, they're jumping in the alligator pit! Look at them! That's <laughs> the alligator pit!" You know, and like you have no idea, like what's what's the alligator pit? What's he I, talking about? And it well, just like, I, fits the music. I, I thought the alligator pit might be the the one of the very few t first times that they actually had a pit in front of the stage where they had a barricade. Oh, interesting. Oh, I, oh, I was wondering about yeah. that. Yeah. And so, I mean, I could be wrong, but that was that was always my thinking because I I went to the Broom County Forum two years after this in 1994 to see Fish, and there was definitely a a, a, a you know I. I didn't ride the rail, but I had a friend up there that did, and I went up there to see them. And I remember there was definitely that 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 pit up there, in a, in a room, you know. And so, and Fish was right at that cusp of, as a band where the Campus Club definitely did not have a, a pit. The Flint mm -hmm. Theater doesn't have a pit. The Palace Theater doesn't have a pit. Those are theaters. Theaters don't. Have yeah. Pit, you know. 
Yeah, this yeah, they is probably like, like that being like where... right by the audience too, having that right. energy there. That, you know, that's, that's something we know they like. Yep, and then they say, "Don't jump into the the alligator pit." And the, you know, I, I think they're in fun with it because you know it's a little. It, 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 yeah, they like that energy, and to have that pit be there, you have to learn how to how to play to it. Mm-hmm. Well, and this show has a sound of being in a in a much bigger room, and it sounds like mm-hmm. you know these these are those first moments where can we take this sound that is so conducive initially to a bar. Then to like a makeshift festival outside and then to a theater. Can we take this to a a larger room? Um, This first set has, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's like in my top five favorite Rebas of all time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do anything weird. It's just so perfectly played. It's like Trey just hits like every single note you would want to hear. I mean, overall, you get this. Um, in the antelope, John Fishman's on trombone. They do a Simpson signal. They haven't done secret language at the show at the time. Uh, they would do it later in the second set, but like you get them knowing if we, you know, if we do a, a, a secret language reference early on in the show, people are going to get this, um, set two, you get, it opens with a Mike's groove. The week is stunning. And, I want to recommend later in this episode, uh, a, a later week pog, but at this time they're not taking week pog out there. They're not to put in any sort of weird distortion. There's no weird, uh, you know, uh, modulation that's coming into play. It's just purely week pog, but they have so much fun with it. And then they fall into sanity where they start shouting out band nicknames and, um, Camarito. you know and you get these just like this is yells from the the stage uh to their crew from trey and mike and it's just like again that connective piece of like we're gonna bring you it's almost breaking down the fourth wall we're gonna bring you the audience into the party you know that we have with our crew with each other and you're all gonna be a part of this it's it's so much fun um benji what are your thoughts on this on this second set the Harry Hood is a great Harry Hood for the era as well. Uh, I agree with everything you, you you know everything else you said, and there is something palpable in this. Let me look back at the first set. Yeah, in the first set too, but in the second set, well, they they establish a, a precedent of great Mike's grooves from Binghamton, but <laughs> apart, apart from that uh, happenstance, there is uh, and maybe you know having been in that room, it is kind of. Uh, the, uh, uh, a hybrid between us, a, a small, you know, it's not quite arena size, but, but it, it has that feel of a hockey, of a hockey rink, you know, minus the, minus all the grandstands, but of a hockey rink. And because of that, I feel like, especially given this time and, and the other venues that are on this tour and Rosa and ballroom is a big deal. The palace theater is a big deal, but, um, but they're, you know, they're, they're, scaling depending on on the city that they're playing in and i feel like binghamton as you said brian they do the secret language this night before they explain the secret language knowing that there's people there that that will that you know know the language already and because of that i feel like they there's that they're aware that a lot of as trey would say from stage a lot of the times this tour they're aware a lot of the people uh, a lot of, of a, a lot of familiar faces and a lot of friends in the audience also aware that there's a lot of friends of friends there that are there for the first time. And you can hear palpably in their playing this potential, this energy, this, you know, this enthusiasm where they, they have something to prove and they have something to prove and they know that they have 
uh, that that's something that they have it, you know, whatever they have yeah. to prove, they, they, they know that they have it and they, they can't wait to show it. They can't wait to share it. And, uh, and you can hear that in those jams, you know, in that, in that Mites groove for sure. in that Harry hood, they, they're, they're breaking a ceiling that later on they would go to raise, uh, you know, by, by hundreds of feet every tour. But, but uh, this was definitely some ceiling breaking going on this night. Yeah, I think you can really hear them like playing with different textures and sounds in a way that I hadn't heard them before. Like in that fluff head, definitely. I think the segue yeah. from fluff head to maze is incredible. It's so effortless and so pretty. And I just want to shout out this antelope. This antelope is like a rocket ship. I mean, it just, it it is awesome. It has so much energy behind it. And this mic screw is one of my favorite moments that I listened to from this March 92. It's just has the mics has this like these wild peaks that are really like dark and sinister, the ending. And then it just goes into these like really dark tonal notes where I think of like the beginning of Weekapog is usually so sunny. Like that's what it is now. It's like this sunny, like, you know, like vibe. And there it's actually not. It's kind of like darker and it, it's cool to hear how different it sounds, I think, than what you usually sound here when you get Weekapog. Um, and then I think it's really cool in that Weekapog how they're like able to do the umpapa signals in the middle of these like solo peaks. Like Trey's like soloing <laughs> and then they're stopping on a dime and doing like umpapa, umpapa, and it's hitting right back to the solo. Like that takes like such dexterity in a way that I think just like you said, Benji, like they're like, look what we can do, you know, in this way that I think is like probably exciting to them too yeah. and the, the get bat jams that they're doing that's another thing mm -hmm. that you just yeah that they're that they smatter throughout this whole tour but they were doing it in a way that you know foreshadows the stop start jams from 97 yes yeah totally yes. the like funk yep totally yeah and the other thing brian you know you mentioned how how this laying down the prototypical you know uh template for friday saturday and sunday I think it's important here that, that we, we know that the night before on, on a Thursday, they played this uh, underrated phenomenal show in New Haven that has a lot of the elements from this, but then it comes Friday and they, they and fish comes alive. And then the following night, I think it's the following night. Let me just make sure. Yes. The following night is in the chestnut cabaret, a very small venue in Philadelphia and geographically they're like, that's they're pushing into this, you know, Philadelphia, which is, now part of the of the fish belt, but at the time that was like the outer edges of it, and you can yeah. hear that transition musically, where they're they're raining it. Once they get to Philadelphia, they're 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 raining it a little bit back in, and they're trying again to showcase themselves in a way that's safe because they want to show their best foot, you know, and put their best foot forward. And and in Binghamton this night, it was sort of this was for this was for them and all of their friends that were in the audience. And you know a, a family vibe to it, where they 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 were relaxed. You can hear how relaxed they were, you know, yeah. as, as uptight as they were energetically. You know? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> they're, they're like doing like that, and you know, so frenetic. But at the same time, also like the, you know, internally they they've got this. And by the mm -hmm. next night, they're like, oh yeah, we gotta we're here to showcase ourselves again, you know. So, well, yeah. it's a it's a really good point because so if you think about this tour, it begins on March sixth. They play three shows in New Hampshire, two in Portsmouth, one in Keene. They go to the Flynn Theater in Burlington. They go to Providence. They go to New York for the Roseland show. They dip down to Washington, D.C., but then come up for that New Haven and Binghamton show before going to Philadelphia. Uh, that's on the 21st. From there, they go Charleston, West Virginia, Richmond, Charlottesville, Winston-Salem, Charlotte, Atlanta, 
back up then to St. Louis and, uh, and Columbia, Missouri. And they will then transition for April. They go out West. They go Lawrence, Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, a bunch of shows in California, Oregon, Washington. Uh, then they come back, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Chicago, Michigan, Cincinnati, Detroit, Cleveland. And then they come back on on uh, May 8th in New York State. And they finish off the tour between May 8th and May 18th with New York, Massachusetts, New York, New York, New York, Massachusetts, New York, Flynn Theater, uh, Burlington to finish things out. So they're basically saying here on March 20th, we are leaving all of you behind. This is kind of our farewell. We're going out into the country. We're going to try to prove ourselves. They're going to have a ton of success, which we're going to talk about when we move into the April, the April uh, portion of this, of this tour. But like so many of these tours would be over the course of 1990, 91, 92, 93, kind of concluding with 1994. Although you could make an argument that the fall 95 tour is really like the last time this would happen where they start out West and then wrap themselves around to the, to, uh, to their homeland in, in, in December, which is part of the reason that made that month so spectacular. But this is one of those tours where they start East, they go West and then they finish East. So they're giving the Northeast both sides of like, you guys are helping us get everything started before we got into the country. And when we come back, we're going to be hot. We're going to be ready to rock. And this Binghamton show really showcases kind of where they're at. Um, if Fish wants to he, do that again, I'm here for it too. If they want to <laughs> start in the East, go West and come back again, I'm here for that. Yeah. We are lucky if we get 54 show years, but 54 yeah. show tours, I know. my God. Oh my God. If you look at like the fish.net, the March, they play like almost every single day in March. It's like crazy. Yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. So before we go, we Dawson, wanted to recommend. If you want to do it again, I'd, I'd watch from home. But totally. I'd yeah, I'll, I'm ready. I'll webcast ready. everything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Before we go here, we wanted to recommend some additional shows that uh, we think are just worthy of your time. We definitely think as a group, March 13th, 1992 and March 20th, 1992 are head and shoulders above the rest. And you should definitely check out if you haven't heard this month or if you have, I returned to these shows though over the weekend and I was so pleased to do so. A mm -hmm. um, couple other shows to recommend here. The opening two shows, 3-6 and 3-7 from Portsmouth, mm -hmm. New Hampshire. Uh, three six, you get the re the debut of the fast rift. You also get across these two shows these songs debuting: Maze, My Friend, My Friend, Mound, Sleepy Monkey, My Mind's Got a Mind of Its Own, Horse Silent, Cold as Ice, Crackling Rosie. You get great uh, set lists like everything that we've talked about. This sense of like these sets, you just put them on in their classic fish. Uh, it's just unbelievable, unbelievable stuff. Um, Meg, do you want to tell us a bit about 324 and 326? Um, I mean, I think I really listened a lot back to 36 and 37 more just mm. because I think like those debuts are really cool to hear. And you hear Trey actually talking to the audience like, hey, thanks for listening. This is like all of our new music. And like we know it's it's a lot to play a lot of new music. But like, thank you so much for listening. And I think they really come out swinging, too. I mean, they clearly been practicing. I don't know if they just wrote all these Rift songs. I was I'm not sure when they wrote Rift, but I imagine it was pretty close to when they came out 
to play these songs in March. And so it's amazing to hear them play all these new songs and cool to hear the new versions of these songs. I mean, anytime you can hear a song, a fish song played for the first time, it's so fun because that's just like a real lesson in history. I think so. I really think listening to these first two shows is definitely worth it. They're all, they're also uh, an early example of a, of a two night stand, which I think is really yeah. Yeah. To, to yeah. listen to back when you listen to those two shows back to back as one, you know, as, as telling one story, they were really working on that uh, and conscious, consciously, you know, trying to construct a story like that um, back, back in 1992, which I, which I think is great. And then jumping ahead, the flood zone in, in Richmond is a phenomenal show the the 324 show you're talking about. Um, is also a phenomenal show that gets overlooked, but uh, we talked about the Wikipod grooves earlier on, you know, not being these bust out Wikipods that we think it was now. And on this one, it kind of was, I mean, the whole band at one point starts basically screaming, you know, uh, on <laughs> it and, uh, and they're doing things that toe the line between what we've, what we've all been talking about of they have that fish humor and, at the time, the the, the humor is not so refined. It, it, it's like that the humor that they've had since the '80s, where yeah. they're they're willing to be silly on stage and into the microphone, and they're marrying that with these musical, you know, uh, improvisational chops. That I think the Wikipod Groove is a great example of it. And the whole the whole show, I, the, it's also there's a great '92 Harry Hood from the show, and then the Forbin's Mockingbird is another example of Trey saying, you know, in the narration of him saying, I'm going to clue all of you in to this magical land that we're a part of, but I know a lot of you already know it, <laughs> you know? So all the way down in Virginia, and he's like, I already know a lot of you know it, you know, but he, but he gives a lot more effort in this Forbin Mockingbird than he gave in the one er from a few weeks earlier, where he knows that, that the majority of that audience knew it. So mm -hmm. it's really interesting to watch. You also get Carl Gearhard coming in to play horns on uh, to play trumpet on Brother and Cavern, um, three twenty six from Winston Salem. You get a triple encore at this show. It's outstanding, outstanding set list. Buried Alive is dedicated to Jimmy Herring, um, and you get Harpua in the third encore slot, which is just such a cool moment and kind of one of those like when you listen to this show, it feels like a hearkening back to the eighties, but it also like you hear the band know at this point in time, like Harpua is one of those songs that we just have to like save. We have to sit on and we have to really savor because when we play this, it's going to have just such a massive impact on the overall show um, of importance. And I think it's important to listen to three twenty eight ninety two from Atlanta. You've got this great set one that like sets up an amazing, what should be an amazing second set. <laughs> Uh, David Bowie has a Birdland jam, but set two is shortened because of a flood. And this, you may, your ears may be perking up. Wait, I feel like I've heard about this before. Atlanta, a flood? What are you talking about? So every song is acapella. There's like four songs played on uh, 328. They they leave the, the, the show. They have to cancel the show early. And as has been basically proven through history and science, they said, when we come back to Atlanta, we are going to absolutely tear this place apart. And when they come <laughs> back to Atlanta, the following spring, they're going to play the Roxy show, 220, 1983, one of the most important shows in fish history. And the overall run, which has obviously been released, heavily lauded throughout fish history, is uh, it's, it's one of those runs that you just kind of have to listen to in full. Um, 
The, the last night of March 1992 that I just want to highlight, Columbia, Missouri, March 31st, 1992. It's all around great set list, but I really want to point out, um, and I'll try to share this in the show notes when we post this episode. There's a just masterful version of Weekapog that's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It, number one shows how intimate these shows are. Benji, you talk about the alligator pit. There are literally people like resting their arms on the stage and just like jumping up and down like in, in unison as they're playing Weekapog. And the camera zeroes in on Trey and you can just see how incredible he was in 1992 like mm. the show being completely about trey in a lot of cases but also you see how close this band was to each other from a from a just a placement standpoint playing in these small stages in these small rooms so we would recommend for you all check out 31392 32092 36 and 37 324, 326, 328, and 331. And you may say to yourself, that's a lot of shows. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of good fish. There's a lot of really good fish to check out. I'll keep you busy. It'll keep you busy before we uh, we, we come back with our April 92 shows. Um, last question for you guys. As we're kind of looking kind of at 10,000 foot view of March 1992, how do you hear this month and the way the band is playing impacting fish as they developed as a live band and, and conversely kind of within that, what do you think they needed to move on from to become what they were going to ultimately become? Um, Benji, as our guest, I'm going to start with you. Well, I think that the jams uh, as, as fish fans who you know love their, the 20 minute mark jams, I think that, those are going to take a little while to to really develop, but but it's planting the seeds here with some of these mm-hmm. elongated jams. And, and as you know, we were saying earlier, this is where this tour is where they really start to, with a certain skill and, a, and an adeptness that they didn't have previously. Where they did, but but they're really just diving more and more into teasing different songs and weaving in and out. And you have that antelope, uh, big black furry from from the campus club, but then you also just have an all, and all these David Bowie's and other smatter, they, they, they're, they're doing these smatterings. And then you jump just a year ahead. And uh, I think, let's see, in March 93, the one thing that would come to mind immediately would be the You Enjoy Myself from Gunnison, Colorado, where they're immediately, where like that, the second half of that is just this, you know, monster tease fest of them going into spooky and, you know, all, all these things and, and moving around with this, swiftness and adeptness that I feel they really started to get their, their sea legs or maybe their tour legs mm-hmm. as it were here in, in, in the spring of 92. And in um, just even a month later, as we talked about, I can't wait yeah. for you guys to get to April because then you have that humble <laughs> girl that, that, that will make even somebody that's never smoked weed in their life feel like they're high than like they're high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it was from a campground in Humboldt County. So that's, you know, like, uh, uh, that's apropos because if you were there anywhere near a campfire, you would have been high. Um, and so I, I feel like, uh, I feel like this, this tour is all about, it's taking all the things that they set up. And they really, really did, so, I, I, you know, who's to say in hindsight how cognizant they were of this at the time and how uh, it was intentional. But they spent the first era of, of, a, of a band making sure that they had the psalms and making mm-hmm. sure they had the compositions and the tightness and then the listening with the with the hey-hole exercises and the okay pa ceremonies, being able to trust each other 
And here mm -hmm. you see them trusting each other and you see them taking risks, yelling in the middle of a, in the middle of a jam, taking risks, not just with each other, but with the audience. And mm -hmm. fish is always uh, something they don't get credited for as much as they probably should. They've always been very responsive to the audience and mm -hmm. to what the audience wants. And when they realize that the audience wants something, they like to they, they like to deliver. It might not be a song. If everyone's requesting, you know, Destiny Unbound for 10 years, it might take them a while <laughs> to come around before before those before they do it for whatever reason uh, you know that they have. That being said, I mean I think I think right now we're seeing it and, and that they saw how these how the fans respond to 20 minute jams, and now we're mm -hmm. seeing so many more of them, you know, and uh, and uh, people for a lot of might. You know, the, the band responds well when the audience has one collective wish or desire because we think that it elevates the music. And I mm -hmm. feel like these, mm -hmm. this was that 92 is that perfect cross section where they're, they're, they, they have the foundation that they just built and now they can take a step up and now they can kind of look over the over that peak and they can be like, that's that's where we're headed. We're headed there, mm -hmm. you know? So uh, uh, I think that this, this tour is... It, it might not be one of the most listened to tours, but it's a very important tour. hundred percent. Meg, what are your thoughts in terms of like, what did the band bring with them, but also kind of what did, what did you, what do you hear them kind of needing to move forward with? Totally agree with what you were saying, Benji. I think that the, the takeaway for me is that the most important part of what makes fish so great, this kind of like humor and connection with the audience totally blossoms this year. I think of them in 92 is still really outward. Like they're, kind of still showing what they can do and looking towards the audience to get that feedback. Like you were saying, Benji, they want that interplay. They want that to feel what the audience wants so they can deliver that. I think where they go over the next few years is they start to listen to each other more. And I think mm. that's where the band really goes that next step is that they start to realize, okay, the audience is here. They're listening. We've got them. Now we can listen to each other and really start to like, go places and take a journey together. And also as Trey starts to step back from that front spot, it also really influences, not that he ever steps back, but he starts to allow others to grow too. And I think that is what makes the band have it more longevity than a lot of other bands where their front man is just happy to be the person in front always, where Trey really starts to step back in those solos and really starts to explore those jams. So that's kind of like where I see them needing to grow and going. I agree with everything you both have said. I think the only thing I would add is, you know, we think about all these debuts that come in the early spring of 1992 and, and debuts are going to trickle in over the course of 1992 as the band writes Rift, I believe fast enough for you debuts in the fall. Um, when you, when you start to get kind of the back end or the, the, the remaining songs on, um, uh, on Rift are going to debut by the end of this year. And then in early 1993, that album's going to be released. We're not going to hear a lot of debuts throughout 1993. 1993 basically takes this sound that they've established here, builds upon it, solidifies it. And then if you think just one year ahead, you talk about that Gunnison show. Um, I think about two songs in 19, in, in, in March of 1993, March and early April, Stash and Weekapog, these two songs that are just going to break out and they're going to showcase a jamming capability and a type two improvisational capability that like is, is really just kind of unknown at this point in time. It's not going to be though until early 1994 that we hear such a new batch of songs. And so for a two year period, what the band debuts here is really going to be 
tinkered with and is going to be played around with. And they're going to kind of experiment off of these songs and use these songs plus their classic batch to really build what fish means from themselves, from a listener standpoint, from just a communal standpoint over the next two years, which all is going to peak with 1231, 1993. And you really hear like the band that plays 1231, 1991 is moving in this direction. But like that band that comes out and plays three, six, 1992 is at a point where they can grow towards being the band that is going to play 1231, 93 still considered one of the greatest fish shows of all time for a variety of reasons. And you just hear that seed really kind of be planted here in this early part of March, 1992. So it's a foundational period, but it's also kind of the point where they know we've got some, we, we still have a lot of areas where we can grow and we still have a lot of, you know, music that we can explore that we haven't even contemplated at this point in time. <laughs> like the idea that this band is going to play the mud Island tweezer in three and a half years is just mind blowing. Right. And, and it's just so cool to see what they're doing. Even just a year later, I mean, the the yeah, you're at gin and you have all these things that that just be and the the Rotsy shows, you know, you have all these things that that uh, this tour really sets up. And without yeah. this tour, without without March '92, and then without April '92, you know, April '92, I think is is one of those months of fish that I put it, you know, it's it just so historic. It, like December '95, you know, August '93 is another one, and I feel like four '92 that might be. It might be the first month of fish that, that historically, when you look back on the timeline, I think you know April '92 might be. Maybe if I was if I was trying to be a sherpa for someone now and tell them what to listen to, I might have them start there or at least back mm. up there. But that's the first month where I'd say anything you listen to in this month is so seminal, and this month right before it sets that all up. It, it's it's seamless flow into it. It's just that they're getting more and more confident every single night as it goes on and by by 93 a year later maybe because of the lack of new material maybe because they're trying mm -hmm. to dial in they and and they're playing some places they're they're big they're, they're doing some santana opening shows where of course they're doing what we talked about where they they're pulling back the the wrists and they're instead putting their best foot forward and then the the nights in between when they do things like you know daring lake and they do they just mm -hmm. do the shows where they have some incredible cross jam jamming you know and and mashup jamming and all these all these things from the fish toolbox that we think of as being the classic elements of fish and this is where they're really sharpening those instruments that is a great transition because <laughs> we will be returning to april 1992 which i completely agree with you i think it is considered and i think it's rightly known as the first great month in fish mm -hmm. history we will be returning to that next month. And Benji, I think we're going to have to have you along as we Come go back. through spring. 92. I think, I think we need to reconvene to do April together because it's so much fun. I would love to. And you know what else I love about that? It means now I have to, God damn it. I have to go back and re-listen to all the shows again. Exactly. <laughs> Listen, so much fun. Yeah. the hard yeah. job. It's a yeah. hard job. Someone it's, has to do it. It's a, yeah, it's a thrill to be, to, to do because, you know, I, and I, I, this is going to be the, the, the one you keep hearing me say is that Humboldt show. Cause that's a show that I listen to, you know, and the, and mm -hmm. then I just, I love the silliness of it and the looseness of it. But there's not a bad show in, in April 92. That's just, a, it's a month that, that uh, deserves 
going back and, and just like going back to reread those books that are classics that you want to reread every, you know, periodically in your life, whether it's Tom Robbins mm-hmm. or Kerouac or whatever, that, that to me, April 92 is something that I, I hope to constantly revisit. So thank you for giving me an, the, the, uh, the, the need to do it. When yes. we will do this, we will, we'll, we'll be in touch about, about doing an April 92 episode here in, in April. Um, Benji, as always, it is always such a pleasure to talk with you, to dive deep. Um, this was so awesome. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on March 1992. This was incredible. And thanks so much for having me. Megan, great to meet you. Brian, so great to meet you. I'll talk to you awesome. anytime. <laughs> so. Sweet. Well, we're going to do it next month. So we've already <laughs> wrote you in. <laughs> <laughs> we will be in touch. And Benji, uh, enjoy your time as you're coming off of travels. I'm guessing you have a ton more travels coming up here in the next couple of weeks. Plus you're, I, I think you're going to MSG. So you have a lot, a lot going on, but try to try to enjoy yourself right now and, and take it easy. I am going to MSG and I, I think I have high hopes for it. <laughs> oh, it's going to be sick. We, we got to meet in person then, Benji. Yeah, oh, absolutely, Benji. We absolutely okay. will. Yeah, Great. for sure. All right, dude. We will talk here soon. Thank you so much for hanging with us today. Yep. Thanks so much. Bye, Bye Benji. Bye. All right. That was awesome. That was so fun. <laughs> March 92. That was so much fun. Um, so we have an episode coming up next week, same time, same place. We're going to be starting a new series within HF pod, which I think should be a ton of fun. Uh, it is going to be called the fish interview series. And no, no, it's not us sitting down and interviewing members <laughs> of the band. That would be too much fun. Uh, it's us looking back at archival interviews that the band gave in their history and just talking about what was going on with the band at the time. What are their responses during this period? What are they wearing? And um, Meg, do you want to tell our audience uh, what interview, what time period we're going to be focusing on during this episode? Yeah, I think next week we're looking at an interview from June 19th, 1994. So this is, I was 17. This is right before, a few months before I saw my first fish show. Trey was sporting some incredible fashion in 94. (laughs) So this should be a really fun interview. It's a great interview. It comes uh, to dive into. It comes on the heels of the UIC 94 show. It's uh, it's June 94. It's a great time in the band's history. So we're going to be um, diving into that. You can find that on YouTube. So I'd encourage people to watch that before watching our episode. So you'll have a little bit of more of the nuance and the insight to it. But we're just going to break that down and talk through what that, that interview was like. And um, we're going to be at, uh, coming at you for the rest of the month with episodes on Wednesdays at 4.30 p.m. And then starting in early April, we are expanding. We have so much yes! to talk about. So, so much. much to talk about. We're going to be coming at you Mondays and Wednesdays at 4.30 p.m. Eastern. It will be similar to what we're doing now, kind of mm-hmm. rotating group of uh, of us talking about fish. We have a lot, a lot to dive into from a historical standpoint. Plus, we're going to have so much to cover this spring and summer with Fish Tour that we can't have this all be one day a week. So we're going to be doing two days, uh, Mondays and Wednesdays at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, which I'm so excited about because this is one of my favorite things to do each week. And uh, I can't wait to continue to hang out with you, Meg. This is awesome. So fun. I'm so excited. And I'm glad that we get to dive into even more awesome topics. 
even more. We we have. I, I will just tell you. I'm not going to tell you how. We have like seven years worth of conversations. To have, <laughs> uh, 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 one one of us dove through every single fish set list uh, uh, available, and, and we have we have a lot to talk about. Brian um, did send an email today that told us we had seven years of content, and immediately, Brian, I just started thinking, how old am I going to be in seven years? <laughs> I will be over forty. And that, uh, that is something I, I never thought was possible. So, you know, it's, it's crazy. You're going to make it. I'll make it. Um, <laughs> before we go today, do you want to let us know, do you want to let our audience know about our friends at Sunset Lake? Yeah. If you haven't checked out Sunset Lake CBD, you really need to. They are a majority employee owned hemp farm. They're located just outside Burlington, Vermont. For years, Sunset Lake was a dairy farm and they produce milk actually for Ben and Jerry's ice cream. See, there's like a fish connection even back then. But in 2019, they diversified. They started growing hemp for CBD. And they're really cool because they embrace Vermont's tradition for land stewardship. They use sustainable, regenerative farming techniques. They build and protect healthy soils. They are 100% pesticide-free. They use minimal tillage. They implement cover crops and crop rotations. They do all the things that you're supposed to do to take care of your land. So they are on it. They also serve as a research farm for the University of Vermont, and they study hemp and inform best industry practices. I have become a huge CBD fan. I love their gummies. They've been really helpful for me. This is a busy time of year for me, and I've been taking one of those every night just to kind of relax. I really like their tinctures, too. They're really mellow. They're nice. You know, you can relax, but you're not going to get the munchies. You're not going to get anxious. You're not going to eat too many cookies. It's a good vibe. So if you have not, check out sunsetlakecbd.com and use the coupon code HFPOD and you'll get 20% off your products. So it's Sunset Lake CBD, farmer owned, Vermont grown. Beautiful. And one last reminder to everyone out there to please subscribe to Osiris Media on Apple Podcasts. You'll get bonus episodes of the Helping Friendly Podcast as well as a number of other of our shows plus ad-free content. We have a bonus episode coming out tomorrow where we talk about our favorite cities to see fish in that is way funnier than that sound. It was just <laughs> it was an amazing episode. Um, between now and then, though, we, we will see you next Wednesday uh, to talk about Fish's interview on 619-1994. We've got a lot more coming for you. Meg, as always, it is such a pleasure to talk with you on Wednesdays. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Get through those parent-teacher conferences. Spring yes. break is, you can see it. It's coming. Yes. And, it's so uh, close. It's so close. And we will uh, we'll talk here again soon. Thanks, Brian. I love spending time with you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good one, everyone. Take care.
Osiris. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.